The Ready, Set, Grow podcast is sponsored by Ag Expert, software designed for Canadian agriculture. Visit them today at agexpert.ca. Welcome to the Ready, Set, Grow podcast, where we like to showcase startup and early stage companies, as well as visit with innovators in the agriculture and food industry. Today, we're here with Joe Dales, co-founder at RH Accelerator, and special guest, Darren Anderson, CEO at Vive Crop Protection. Darren, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. Uh, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So, uh, Darren Anderson, um, the CEO and one of the co-founders behind Vive Crop Protection, um, didn't grow up uh, on a farm, but grew up around agriculture uh, in a um, small community here in in, in Ontario. Um, but uh, when, I, when we, need, I was... we need the shout out for the small community. Oh, okay. So, Corona. Uh, Corona. Near Sarnia. Near Perfect. Sarnia. Um, and I had a lot of family members that, that were, uh, were, were in farming, um, but uh, my family wasn't. Um, but when I, was, um, when I was in high school, I moved to the city. And I uh, you know, was a, a, boy, a true, true blue city boy for uh, probably uh, about 10 years. Went to the University of Toronto, uh, ended up doing my PhD in chemistry. And as part of my PhD, uh, went through some training, some exposure to what it's like starting a business, being an entrepreneur, et cetera, and really convinced ourselves that we had a, an interesting business idea, which I'm happy to talk about, that has turned into Vive Crop Protection. And that was 15 years ago. Vive turns 15 on March 30th. Um, and uh, since then, uh, you know, I, I helped co-found the company. We, After a couple of years, we really started focusing on applications for our technology and agriculture, uh, the business has grown, et cetera. And uh, I've absolutely fallen uh, fallen in love with the industry. I think uh, one of the most awesome and incredible things about agriculture is how much of a need and a desire there is for technology to help um, improve productivity, efficiency, sustainability. Um, and I'm I I love bringing new innovative technologies to uh, to audiences that that want them. So it's uh, it's been an awesome part of the industry to to be part of, and uh, I've been been really excited to be uh, building by. Yeah, it's exciting. We're going to talk a little bit about Vive. I think uh, we first met at the Farm Progress show. It was probably in Boone, Iowa. It was. Um, and uh, it was one of the first times you guys had taken a booth and were, uh, were promoting the company and we're in the same tent. And I'd, I'd read about Vive, I think, because you had uh, some great board members and, and, um, yeah, we're, we're, the farms.com booth was across the aisle or down the row uh, a little bit. And, and uh, yeah, we had the pleasure to meet you. So we, we saw when you were getting started with your, your marketing into the U.S. market. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Vive, what products you offer currently, um, a little bit about your, your, your organization and the growth and, uh, you know, some of the background there for people that aren't familiar with, with the company. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll start with, we're, we're a pesticide company uh, working on both traditional chemical pesticides that would be used in conventional production, um, but we also have some activities that we've been doing in, in the area of biologicals that I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. But our, our belief is that uh, there's a need for precision application of, um, of pesticides. And everybody, there's a ton of people that are working on the data and analytics piece. So, you know, giving a grower a prescription, hey, on your farm, you should be applying these products on these parts of your farm or, um, you know, mo monitoring when you're planting, what soil conditions are, that kind of thing. 
there's all sorts of technology that's going into equipment. So what, um, you know, precision application equipment, um, you know, new like drone sprayers, all that kind of thing. But there's almost no innovation going into precision technology being built into the jug of a crop protection product that a grower would buy. Um, and that's really what we're all about. It's about building technology into the jug that is a precision chemistry technology that helps precisely control how the active ingredient in that jug behaves when a grower is using it in order to help it be more effective, easier to use, um, be able to be applied in a, in a new way that might be agronomically more effective, um, creating value for that grower and creating some innovation primarily based off developing newer versions of products that they've already known and used for, for years and, and trust and, and have, a, have a real track record in this industry. So specifically, you've got some really interesting technology. You're applying it to uh, some, art, some AI, some uh, active ingredients, and almost turning them into new products, uh, you know, pumping up their performance you know, uh, helping with compatibility with fertilizers. So why don't you talk a little bit about that and, you know, some of the major crops that you're involved in and, and some of the major, uh, you know, actives that you're, uh, that you're, that you're seeing this transformation with. Sure. Absolutely. So if we think about um, how a pesticide uh, needs to work in order to be as effective and precise as possible, what you really care about are making sure that it's really, really stable when it's being stored in the jug, that it can mix with other products in the tank, that it sticks well to a leaf if it's foliarly applied and gets absorbed quickly into the leaf, and that it, it's, if it's being soil applied, that it's getting to where the pests are that you, or, or weed seeds or whatever it is that you're trying to target. And that's what our business is about. We can improve things in, in all of those areas. Um, our existing products that we have on the market today are really built around better mixing in the tank, primarily in order to be able to be co-applied with, uh, with liquid fertilizers. And that's actually a really uh, difficult scientific challenge because if you wanna mix a traditional uh, pesticide with a liquid fertilizer, the problem you run into is these fertilizers are incredibly salty. Um, so 10 times saltier than the ocean. And so if you put something into that um, fertilizer, it sucks all the water out of it. It's just like how your, your mouth gets super parched if you eat something really, really salty. And that causes everything in that product to just fall apart in, in the tank. And so you get this cottage cheese and you can't apply those, those products together. In our case, we've used our Alispurse delivery system, which is what we call our proprietary technology, to make products that can mix easily and quickly with virtually any liquid fertilizer that's on the market. So that anytime a grower is applying a liquid fertilizer, they can now apply one of our pesticides at the same time. And in a lot of cases that creates some real advantages in terms of convenience or it being the best agronomic timing or, or those types of things. So, um, so that's really what our, we've got five products on the market now that are all designed to be able to mix with fertilizer, um, two fungicides, two insecticides, and a nematicide. Um, and our key crops are sugar beets, potatoes, uh, corn, soybeans, dry beans, and alfalfa. Um, and in all of those cases, these products are designed to be applied with a fertilizer, either, for instance, in furrow at planting or in a foliar application where a grower might be doing like a foliar feed through a pivot. 
and there are some advantages to being able to apply, uh, for instance, a fungicide at the same time. Um, so how would farmers uh, go about accessing your product? Uh, uh, local retailers, um, you know, what's, your, what's been your go-to-market strategy there? Yeah, so, so um, it, across, so we're, we're currently selling commercially in the U.S. We don't have any commercial activities in Canada yet. Uh, we will be launching here in Canada over the next year or so, but right now U.S. only. Uh, and we do have distribution set up across the U.S. and it is traditional ag retail. So uh, if you go into your ag retailer and you tell them that you're interested in these products, they should be able to get them. Um, you know, we do have contact information for all of our sales representatives on our website, uh, www.5crop.com. Uh, so if you're, you're having trouble accessing it through your local retailer, just, um, you know, give your local rep a call and they can direct traffic either to a retailer that's already got it in stock or ensure that your retailer can carry it. And what are the, what are the, the main products again, just so people know by name, uh, uh, what are the, what are the five products they should be coming and asking at their retailer for? Yeah, so the first one is Asteroid FC 3.3. Um, so that's azoxystrobin that's designed to be able to be mixed with fertilizer, uh, and that's primarily for rhizoctonia control. Uh, we have Xylar FC, which is based on um, uh, metal axles, what's in, basically in Ritamil, uh, and that is um, for Pythium phytophthora control. So those are both fungicides. We have Bifender FC, which is bifenthrin, the same ingredient that's in uh, Capture LFR. Uh, and that is for uh, corn rootworm control primarily. Uh, we have uh, MIDAC FC, so that's imidacloprid, um, and that is an, a systemic insecticide. Uh, so it's one of the neonicotinoids that can be used in furrow. And then our last product is Averland FC, which is um, primarily being used as an nematicide, although it does have some insecticide properties as well, and, and that's uh, based on abamectin. You've been uh, in the crop protection space for, I think you said 15 years now. Uh, can you just talk to some of the trends and changes that you've seen in that space over the time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's, there's a few different things that I think are, are really interesting that are going on. Um, one is you're starting to see more and more attention being paid by buying groups to sustainability. Um, and so, you know, you're seeing these secondary standards where Costco or Walmart or Whole Foods will say, hey, you know, if we're going to buy uh, a commodity, that commodity needs to be grown with a set of growing practices that are maybe different than, than what's EPA approves or, or that type of thing. Um, and you're seeing a lot of early stage growth companies that are coming out and they're saying, hey, you know, we can really help with this sustainability uh, issue that, uh, that the industry is facing and, and really help improve the sustainability of agriculture. My personal view is, I mean, first of all, agriculture has always been focused on sustainability. I mean, you know, growers, they, they care a lot about the, their, the, the land that they're handing down to their kids or their grandkids, right? And so, uh, you know, I think a lot of that, there, there's certainly some interesting debates that we could have around public perception versus reality. But it doesn't change the fact that, you know, these buying groups are making some of these decisions and those decisions do have an impact on, um, on the decisions that, that a grower would need to make. One of the challenges, though, that I see is I see a lot of these um, early stage companies that are really coming out and they're saying sustainability is the most important thing and we have a more sustainable product for you and this will help improve your sustainability. But they're, in some cases, not necessarily as focused on the performance, like what's in it for a grower that, need, that has a bottom line that they're paying attention to. 
And so one of the things I'm passionate about is ensuring that we're thinking performance first, sustainability second. I mean, our products are more targeted. They are more agronomically efficient. They do allow for reduced water use, reduced fuel use, reduced trips over the field. There is a sustainability advantage associated with what we're doing, but we're really focused on what is the performance advantage to a grower? How does it make a grower's life easier? How does it put more money in their pocket? How does it make a difference for them? And I think um, in order for some of these sustainability um, technologies to really be adopted, that's going to be a really critical component that needs to be thought through for, for a lot of these companies. And it's something we've been really proud about what we've been doing. Yeah, thanks uh, for sharing that. Are there any, I guess, overall trends in agriculture that you see that uh, will sort of change, uh, I guess, the crop protection uh, landscape uh, sort of over the next five, 10 years? Consolidation is an obvious one. Um, you know, the, the big guys are all getting bigger. Um, and I mean, ultimately that leads to a bit of a um, one size fits all approach to, to marketing approaches. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just, you know, if you're one of the really big guys, um, you know, you're, you're not going to get out of bed if there's an opportunity that's a five or $10 million opportunity. It just doesn't make sense given how you're set up as an organization. Um, and so I do think that that consolidation can limit innovation um, because it means that, you know, if a grower's, you know, one of our biggest crops is in sugar beets and that's a market that's a million acres in the US. And so it's difficult for anything to be developed uniquely for a sugar beet grower by those big guys. Whereas for a company like ours, makes a ton of sense. So I think that that consolidation is definitely a challenge. The other thing you're seeing with the big guys is more and more of a focus on traits and genetics and biotechnology and, and those types of things. Um, you know, it used to be that these were all chemical companies first and, you know, genetics or seed companies second. And now I would say that that's almost completely inverted. The chemical piece of their business is really there to support their other activities um, just because of where the profitability is, but also because, I mean, it takes, I think it's over $300 million in over 10 years to bring a new chemical to market. Like it doesn't make sense for them to make those investments. It makes more sense for them to be making investments in traits or genetics or those types of things. So it's a very natural evolution of, of how those businesses uh, are changing. Darren, just, uh, you know, we've got a lot of people interested uh, in leadership, um, you know, small business leadership, uh, entrepreneurialism. Uh, what lessons have you learned over the last few years that, uh, that you can share with uh, other uh, young business people and people that are interested in starting their own businesses? So I've got two that I'd like to share that are, are a little bit related and maybe a little contrarian compared to what, uh, what some of your other panelists have, have said or guests have said. Um, the first is, like I said, this might be a little contrary, but don't hold yourself up necessarily to what you're seeing from your competitors or other startups in the market. I think one of the things that is incredibly damaging to the entrepreneurship ecosystem is this idea that every company is always going up and to the right uh, all the time, right? And that you don't have hiccups and you don't have setbacks. And, you know, you look at your competitors and your competitors have just raised, you know, a series B at a great valuation. You know, honestly, there's like a 50% chance that that was a recap. 
Um, you know, you don't know what's going on inside of other companies. It is a challenging thing to build a business. Nothing always goes up and to the right. And so you can't hold yourself to that standard. You, you know, you control what you can control, do the best that you can. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's how you will be the most successful. Um, and something related to that, I remember there was a period a few years ago where, um, you know, we had some challenges that we were trying to work through. And my wife said to me, uh, Darren, you need to um, have less of your ego tied up in the success of five. Um, and I remember thinking about that. And at the time I was working with a coach, I remember talking to the coach about it. And I realized that she was right. You know, as entrepreneurs, the business you start, it's your baby, right? And you, you want to see it be successful, just like we want to see our kids be successful or other folks in our family be successful, right? It, it, it's almost like it's part of but ultimately you can only control what you can control. And if at the end of the day, you're looking at it and you're saying, I did everything that I could have done. I worked as hard as I could have done. I made the, I made the decisions that I thought were best at the time. Then you got to have some equanimity around the outcome. Um, and it doesn't mean that you don't work hard because you do, because you, again, you need to be confident that you did everything that you could. But, um, you know, ultimately, luck has a lot to do with how companies uh, succeed or fail. And I think that that's another uh, really damaging myth. You know, you see these entrepreneurs that go up and say, I built this huge company because I made all of these right decisions. And I think every single time there should be a disclaimer that says, and they got lucky. Because luck, I, I mean, you know, if you're a growth company, you're going to have at least three or four, probably more like eight or 10 near death experiences uh, as a company. And, you know, if you load the dice every time um, to make sure you don't roll snake eyes, you know, you roll those dice eight, 10, ten six times, there's still a really good chance that you're going to roll snake eyes despite all of the work that you do. So you have to be aware of the fact that luck plays a huge component in your success. And, and that also helps you, again, not tie as much as your ego into it because we can't control that piece of, of our success. Those are those are really aren't contrary in views because I think when you talk to other founders, they know how hard it is, and they know the pain and suffering that typically founders, uh, CEOs. It's kind of a lonely a lonely walk, right? And you have a lot of responsibility. And you're right, you know, right place, right time is hard to find. Um, and we've all had those near death experiences where you know you probably shouldn't have survived. But as I tell, uh, you know, a lot of founders, you know, um, great companies are are born in the blast furnace, right? And mm -hmm. it's it's Absolutely. it's not clean, it's not easy, and it's you know, as long as you can look yourself in the in the eye and say, hey, I did it, did the best I could, um, you know, you have to live with that. And the results are the results. Um, the the one thing I like about you is you have though tried to employ some interesting techniques to improve your luck. So talk about, uh, you know, things like Rockefeller habits and how, how some of those are great ideas that, um, you know, have helped hopefully improve your whole organization. Yeah, absolutely. And just to go back to the contrary idea, I totally agree that I think if you ask most entrepreneurs, they would, they would agree with the vast majority of what I just said, mm -hmm. but we're not comfortable talking about it. Uh, we're not comfortable, right. <laughs> you know, acknowledging that. We no war stories. No war, not until after <laughs> it's all done, 
right? Sure, it was easy. Uh, it was, yeah, so so I think that I, I think that it's important for folks to uh, be willing to show a little bit of vulnerability in, in these kinds of situations. So, um, but yeah, so as far as loading the dice uh, and giving ourselves the best chance of success and the best chance of being in the right place in the right time, you know, one of the things that I think um, is really important. So there's a ton of um, coaching and tools that are available for how do you get a business off the ground? You know, I've got an idea. How do I start a business? How do I raise a seed round? How do I incorporate? How do I build a board? Like there's a huge infrastructure around how do you get from startup to a million dollars in revenue? There is very little available to help a founder think about, okay, I've built a business. It's now got some revenue. I've got a, I've got a market access. Now, how do I scale that? And how do I get from a million dollars to $10 million? And how do I get from $10 million to $100 million? That training doesn't really exist. Um, and uh, there's been a couple of things that we've done that have been really important to thinking through that element. The first was we participated in a program that's offered uh, through the Lazaridis Institute, um, their Lazaridis Scale-Up Program, which is highly recommended for any of your listeners that are in that one to $10 million range and trying to understand how to scale the business. It was transformative for us. And the reason it was transformative is because going into that process, um, myself and the other founders, we would jokingly say that it felt like the organization was held together by chicken wire and duct tape because everything was breaking. We knew that there was things that we needed to fix, but we didn't have the tools to know how to fix them. Um, and we weren't necessarily at a point where we were going to hire in, you know, some, a COO that had scaled a business a long way or anything like that. So we had to figure it out on our own. And this Lazarus Scale-Up program really helped give us exposure to the tools that you need to be thinking about. Now, how do you think about you know, setting objectives? How do you think about incentive plans for a sales team? How do you think about um, you know, customer success? How do you think about marketing? All of those, how do you think about HR, culture building, et cetera? All those things that are critical. So that program is awesome. Uh, we're also currently participating Mars, uh, which is a, um, uh, uh, I'll call it an accelerator. I don't know if they would love that language, but an accelerator based here in Toronto has a program for companies that are at $10 million to try to get them to $100 million. So it's called their Momentum Program. And that's a lot of mentorship and coaching and people you can draw on when you're saying, hey, I'm beating my head against the wall about this issue. What do I do? So that's also been really useful to us. One of the things we did internally coming out of those two programs is we implemented uh, the Rockefeller Habits, which, which you alluded to there, Joe. And this is, um, there's two different, there's the Rockefeller Habits, which is based in a book by Vern Harnish called Scaling Up. Uh, there's also the Entrepreneurial Operating System, which is a little bit of an easier way of applying some of those concepts for earlier stage companies. But in both cases, one of the key things that they say is, you know, focus, 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 you know, figure out what you're trying, like, Everybody thinks, all right, what, what is the company going to look like in five years or 10 years? You can't plan for a five-year time horizon or a 10-year time horizon. And so their guidance is, you know, figure out what the summit of your company's Mount Everest is, what you're aiming towards. Keep that in mind and then focus on what you're going to accomplish over the next year. And if you accomplish those things over the next year, then you will be able to make progress towards your Mount Everest. And it's all about incremental change because we always underestimate uh, what we can or overestimate what we can do in a short period of time and underestimate what we can do in a long period of time. But if you're if you're, you know, getting three objectives, three really important objectives done in every department, every quarter, then every year you're making 12, uh, 12 big strides towards that objective. 
And so you just build on it and just start building that flywheel of execution and keeping focused on what are the main things of this quarter. And that's also a really useful tool to have alignment across the organization so that everyone at the organization knows, okay, this piece that I'm working on ties directly into the company's goals this quarter or my department's goals this quarter, which supports the company. So that's been really useful for us just around driving focus and ensuring that we're really saying, you know, I, I use the main things, like keep the main thing, the main thing and keep the main things, the main things. Uh, I think that was a Phil Jackson quote, if I'm, if I'm not, mis uh, not mistaken. So yeah, those are some uh, yeah, great uh, tools and points. Um, before we head out, is there anything you'd want to share with our listeners? The only thing that I'll mention that I didn't talk much about earlier as far as Vive is, um, you know, I talked a lot about what we've been doing with more traditional chemical pesticides, but we're also starting to really unlock the potential of some of the biologicals that are starting to come to market. And, um, you know, for our grower audiences or for anybody from an agribusiness or investor issue, one of the biggest issues with a lot of these biological products is keep, so that's where you're using like a microbe or a, a plant extract or a fungal spore to stimulate the plant or help control a weed or a pest or whatever. One of the big challenges is keeping that microbe alive long enough for it to do its job or keeping it stable long enough for it to do its job. And we've developed some technology that helps improve the stability of those, those materials so that, you know, if a grower buys it, they know that if they're going to go out and apply it in three months or six months, it's going to be effective. And then what we've been doing is we've been combining those with our uh, conventional chemical products so that, again, a grower knows that when they're buying one of our combination products, they get the benefit of the traditional chemical that they've used for years and they know and trust. And then they get the, the benefit of the biological, whether it's a plant stimulant property or drought tolerance or a second mode of action for disease control. So we're really excited about that. And we think we're really unique in that we're providing innovation on both the conventional chemicals and the biological side. Um, and we're going to be having our first product coming to market uh, this year. Uh, so we expect to receive our EPA registration uh, in the next quarter. Um, and presuming we receive that EPA registration, we expect to start making that product available uh, to growers this year. And the product's going to be called Astronaut FC, and it's a combination of a plant stimulant with our, uh, our asteroid FC 3.3 fungicide. That's exciting. Congrats. Looking forward to, uh, you know, a whole new stream of products coming, uh, coming from Vive. Um, how can people get a hold of you, uh, Darren, uh, you personally, and then remind them again on if they're interested in learning more about Vive, where to, uh, to get information. Sure. So for me personally, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm Darren Anderson from Vive Crop Protection. Relatively easy to look up there. I am on Twitter at Darren J. Anderson. Um, so relatively easy to find there as well. And, and my DMs are open. Um, and then uh, as far as the company itself, the website's www.vivecrop.com. Uh, and we are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all, uh, all at Vive Crop. So relatively easy to find. I just want to uh, thank our listeners for tuning into the Ready, Set, Grow podcast today. And thank you again, Darren, for joining us to tell us about Vive Crop Protection. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>